Good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you. Um, for those of you who are here last week, you would have noticed that church was a bit more empty than it usually is. Um, our church had or hosted a marriage retreat um, out at Jambona uh, Lodge. Um, and it was really uh, quite a wonderful weekend. Uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Trafford Fisher, but him and his wife, Carol, uh, did a series on how to enrich your marriage. And it was just a, it was a really, really good weekend. We hope that the next time that we uh, run the retreat, that um, for those of you who weren't able to join us, would be able to join us uh, next time. But anyway, we're really glad that we're back here. And uh, it's nice to be able to share Sabbath with you and uh, spend the morning now, um, I want to start out, as, as you can see the title of the message, uh, What Adventism Means to Me, Part 2. Uh, last time I spoke, we covered Part 1, and I recognize, um, if you're joining us today and you missed the first uh, part of the series, that uh, I'm going to be making a lot of statements that seem foreign, and uh, I encourage you to actually go online, see the first uh, message, or listen to it, or watch it, and that way it'll pick you back up to speed. I'll do my best to review certain points, um, but if something sounds foreign, you can just go click that first sermon on, on the YouTube channel, and you'll be able to um, catch up. Now, I left you on a bit of a cliffhanger last time. Um, I stated that there are challenges to how we apply the prophetic message of Revelation chapter 14, uh, the three angels' message. Um, Generally, we, we apply a lot of this message as a warning in regards to papal Rome. Uh, the majority of the three angels' message tends to focus on papal Rome. And I mentioned that the challenge is that papal Rome is no longer a persecuting power, and that um, its influence, uh, it doesn't really have that influence to threaten our faith and our freedom. And so in the lives or in the times that we live in right now, there's this strong separation between church and state. And at the moment, the church is probably more at risk of just becoming tone deaf to the needs of the community than it is of it having its, uh, its religious organization, uh, organization spiritually influenced by um, this, uh, by papal Rome. So what I want to say today is I am not proposing that we deviate from the Adventist historical approach to the three angels' message. The way I see these messages, they are prophetic, and if we disregard them and we fail to pass them on to the next generation, when prophecy is fulfilled, that generation actually misses out. So on the other hand, if we continue to repeat very specific interpretations to this uh, prophecy and it hasn't happened yet, then we lose credibility with the outside community because truth that continues to not be fulfilled ceases to be truth to the skeptic, if that makes sense. If we cry wolf and there is no wolf, well then, why would people want to listen to what we have to say? What I'd like you to do is turn to Ezekiel chapter 12, and we're going to just kind of Go through verses 21 to 28. If you've got those World Changer Bibles next to you, you can flick there. If you've got your phones, if you have your own Bibles, I encourage you to turn with us. Ezekiel chapter 12, verses 21 to 28. And for those of you who have the World Changer Bibles, it's page 673. Ezekiel chapter 12, verses 21 to 28. And I'm going to be jumping around a little bit. I'm going to start in verse 21. 
So page 673, Ezekiel 12, starting in verse 21. Here's what the passage says. Again, a message came to me from the Lord. And this is Ezekiel the prophet speaking. Son of man, you've heard that proverb they quote in Israel. Time passes and prophecies come to nothing. Tell the people this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will put an end to this proverb and you will soon stop quoting it. Now give them this new proverb to replace the old one. The time has come for every prophecy to be fulfilled. I love this passage because usually when we talk about prophecies, we speak in certainty. This is going to happen. Prophecy will be fulfilled. And here in this passage, God acknowledges that he delays at times. And there's this, um, there are these whisperings that are going throughout Israel where people are saying, hey, didn't God say this was going to happen and it hasn't happened? Oh, then God's not going to do what he says he's going to do. And God is saying, I acknowledge that I delay. But there's going to be a time when my prophecy is fulfilled. Let's jump to verse 26 to 28. It says, then this message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, the people of Israel are saying he's talking about the distant future. His visions won't come true for a long, long time. Therefore, tell them this is what the sovereign Lord says. No more delay. I will now do everything I have threatened. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. I also love the certainty of it where God says, yes, I delay. But one day it will be fulfilled and my words will be vindicated. So here's my suggestion. How do we as a church that has this prophetic message that is kind of the mission and vision statement of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. How do we proclaim this prophetic message as God delays? My suggestion or my proposal is that while we wait for the fulfillment of these specific applications of prophecy... Instead of fixating on the wrongs that haven't happened, i.e. enforced worship and persecution, that we focus on the content of those prophecies. In other words, it's one thing to identify who Babylon is. It's another thing to look at the characteristics of Babylon. It's the difference between identifying a criminal and fighting crime. And I'm saying as a church that has a prophetic message, let's fight crime while the criminal is still doing their thing. So let's go to the word and explore the three angels message. Revelation chapter 14 and we're going to be look at we're going to be looking at verses 6 to 16. Revelation chapter 14 and just keep your finger here cuz we'll be going back and forth. Revelation chapter 14 verses 6 to 16 and we're going to start at the end of the message actually in verses 15 and 16. This is page 998. Revelation chapter 14, verses 15 and 16. Here's what the Bible says. Then another angel came from the temple and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, Swing the sickle for the time of harvest has come. The crop on earth is ripe. So the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the whole earth was harvested. 
the harvest here in Revelation is depicting an event called the second coming of Christ. This is God's solution to the problems of earth. Earth is becoming less inhabitable. Global warming, warming is a reality. We're not finding solutions to war, disease, to conflict, to corruption. The question is, how do we then sustain life? The late Stephen Hawking said something really interesting. He said, it will be difficult enough to avoid disaster in the next hundred years, let alone the next thousand or million. Our only chance of long-term survival is not to remain inward-looking on planet Earth, but to spread, into, uh, spread out into space. So here's one of the most brightest minds of the 21st century. And he looks at the problems of Earth and he says, how do we sustain life as humanity? And his answer is so science fiction, right? Hop on a spaceship and go find an inhabitable planet or figure out how to survive in space. That's his solution, right? And if you talk to serious scientists who consider where Earth is at, basically the answer is, yeah, we're in trouble, right? And that's why you have movies like Interstellar, right? And actually there's a whole series of movies of space travel the world is coming to an end, right? And actually, that's the reality. Life is not sustainable here. And so when you read about this idea in the Bible where God is saying, I'm coming again to fix the problems of earth, that's exactly God's solution. He's saying, I'm going to come and take you to another place. God in the second coming rights the wrongs of humanity. It's at the second coming he solves the problem of death and evil. And this is such a significant event in the Bible. And for me, an important question is, here's the second coming. What do I need to do to be ready for the second coming? And here's where the three angels' message falls in context to this event. These three messages are to prepare God's people for the second coming of Christ. So let's look at that message, or let's look at those messages, starting in verse 6. The text reads, and I saw another angel flying through the sky, carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong to this world, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Fear God, he shouted. Give glory to him, for the time has come where he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. The first part of the message says what God has done, or excuse me, yeah, the first part of the message says what God has done. This angel proclaims this everlasting gospel, the message that Jesus died and rose again, and this communicates Jesus' conquered sin, and his love is for every person, everywhere, all the time. So how do we respond to that gospel message? Notice verse 7, it says, fear God. There's one verse that I want to share that I believe kind of really explains what it means to experience the fear of God. And that may not make sense initially. God loves you. He died for your sins, so be afraid of him. Like, it's kind of an interesting message. But if you look at Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, it says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Isn't that interesting that in the Bible, it connects this experience of fearing God with the experience of feeling forgiveness? 
It's kind of like being completely aware of our deficiencies and coming in the presence of a perfect, omnipotent, powerful God and realizing I don't deserve to be here. And at the same time, God is communicating, you are forgiven. You belong right here. And the result of that is a sense of fear, awe, appreciation, respect, and a desire to kind of cling to God. There are stories in the Bible where Jesus' disciples come to him and they fall at his feet and they say, depart from me, I'm not worthy of you. Why would you fall at Jesus' feet and go towards him if you don't feel worthy of him? See, they've experienced the presence of God and they sense fear. If I were to try to exp uh, explain this in a human relational term, I think that fear is best experienced post-forgiveness. Or I should say, a true sense of confession comes post-forgiveness. And let me try to explain it this way. I realize I'm being a bit vague here. When you argue with somebody, before you've reconciled, it's always the other person's fault, right? This is what you did. No, this is what you did. No, this is what you did. But after reconciliation, it's always your fault. I'm so sorry for the way that I treat. No, 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 it's my fault. No, 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 it's my fault. It's interesting that genuine confession, a sense of how wrong you are, comes after you've been forgiven. And so here, the response to the everlasting gospel is a fear of God, a sense of forgiveness. If we keep on reading, in verse 7, notice it says, Worship him who made heaven, uh, the sea, the fountains of waters. And my question is, what does it mean to worship God in this way? As I mentioned last week, this part of Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, is a direct quotation of the fourth commandment. This is how it reads. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your servant or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested the seventh day. See, a response to salvation is to rest in God, to enjoy his company, to trust in his creative power, to submit to him as creator and as God. The gospel has been preached since the beginning of time. And the question is, what makes this so different? What's so different about remember the Sabbath? What's so different about Jesus has died for you? And in the first angel's message, it adds one bit of information, and it says, for the time of judgment has come. In other words, there's a period of time when judgment takes place. There are decisions that are being made to either accept Christ or to not accept him, and it becomes increasingly important to accept Christ and to respond to the gospel the closer we get to the end of judgment. We move on to the second angel's message, verse 8, or excuse me, yeah, verse 8. Then another angel followed him through the sky, shouting, Babylon is fallen, is fall, uh, excuse me, Babylon is fallen, that great city is fallen, because she made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. When I read this part of the three angels' message, I ask myself, what is Babylon? The first instance of Babylon is found in Genesis chapter 11, verses 2 to 4. It reads, And it came to pass 
as they journeyed from the east, and this is just humanity, people that are scattered around post-flood, that they found a plain in the land of Babylonia, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, they had asphalt for mortar, and they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Babylon represents man standing in opposition to God. It's man saying, God, you wiped out the earth with a flood. We're not going to let you do it again. And hence, we're building this tower. Man stands in place of God in opposition to him. Babylon is about building a tower of safety. It's about building a name. It's about building a reputation. It's about doing anything that can replace man's need to trust and rely on God. You know, there's so many ways that we can replace God. We can replace God with ideology, with philosophy, with consumerism. We can even replace God with aspects of religion. See, Babylon represents idolatry. And idolatry isn't necessarily completely anti-God. Idolatry is only representing a side of God that we like. We like a certain aspect of God, so we worship that, but disregard the rest. The problem is, as soon as you highlight one aspect, you miss out on another. And this limits God's glory. And people then have a skewed understanding of God. Let me give a few examples. The Ten Commandments represent one aspect of God. Our dietary regulations in the Bible represent one aspect aspect of God. Our stance on human sexuality represents one aspect of God. And each of these things are really, really important. But, but it's possible to highlight one aspect and idolize that one aspect while misrepresenting the rest of how God is portrayed in Scripture. Let me give an example. If you turn in your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2. Actually, we're going to start in Romans chapter 1. And there's this famous verse or famous passage of um, God or Paul highlighting sin. And I think this is so informative. So Romans chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 23. And I'm going to be reading a large portion of scripture, so I encourage you to follow along. Verse 23. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired as a result. They did vile and degrading things which either, which with each other's bodies they traded the truth about god for a lie so they worshiped and served the things god created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise that is why god abandoned them to their shameful desires even the women turned against their natural way to have 
you can read and instead indulge with each other. And the men, instead of having normal, okay, you can read that. And you keep going. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. And you read through that and it's just like every wrong thing you can think of is like listed any wrong thing that christianity is known for is listed there okay but let's keep reading verse 30 they are backstabbers haters of god insolent proud and boastful they invent new ways of sinning and disobeying their parents and we continue on sorry chapter two okay You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse when you say they are wicked and should be punished. You are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do the very same things. Isn't that interesting? So Romans 1 lists all these things that God considers as sinful. And then right after that, he says, by the way, don't condemn those people who do those things. Isn't that interesting? Let's keep reading. Verse 2, And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. And he's talking about condemning here. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin. Another translation says, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. See, it's so easy to harp on people for doing wrong. And yet, in the very context of that wrong, that list of wrongdoing, God says, by the way, don't condemn people because my goodness is what changes people. You see, when we just portray one aspect of truth, we misrepresent God. And in doing so, we block people from seeing the very glory of God. And so here in the second angel's message, it talks about this entity, this system that misrepresents God. And that message is that it will fall and it repeats itself. It will fall, it will fall. Now that may seem like a typo at first, but it's actually a literary feature in the Greek. When you repeat a statement, It's supposed to show the imminence of that aspect of the message being fulfilled. So if I say, Roy is buff, is buff. Now, clearly, I am not buff. I'm skinny, but okay, anyway. (laughs) So if I say, I'm buff, uh, if God says, Roy is buff, is buff, one day, I'm going to be jacked, right? And so the second angel's message is, this false system of replacing God will fail. It's going to fall. Let's go to the third, uh, one final point on that. The demise of Babylon is imminent. So any work of man will fail. And I love this because it's just as much a promise as it is a warning. It's a promise as it is a warning. Third angel's message. Going back to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, and we 
read the final angel's message in verse 9. It says, and this is page 998 for those of you who are making your way there. It says, Then the third angel followed them, shouting, Anyone who worships the beast and his statue or who accepts his mark on his forehead or in his hand must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath, and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they have no relief day or night, for they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. So, in summary, the third angel is saying, don't receive the mark of the beast. If you do, bad things happen. Now, if you look at Revelation chapter 13, verses 15 to 18, it actually talks about what the mark of the beast is. Revelation chapter 13, verses 15 to 18. That's just the previous page. It says here, He was then permitted to give life to the statue so that it could speak. Then the statue of the beast commanded that anyone refusing to worship it must die. He required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. And no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which is either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. So there's this connection throughout scripture between 666 and Babylon. The number 666 historically was a way that Babylon uh, identified itself. It's kind of like the branding of Babylon. And I don't know how many of you follow um, like rap or anything like that, but there's a guy named Takashi 666. Uh, anyway, Takashi, and he's got 666 like tattooed on his forehead. <laughs> and anyway, uh, I just he was in the news and I was like, why would you tattoo that on your face? <laughs> anyway, um, it's branding. It's a way that Bob Babylon says, this is us. So if you look at the architecture of Babylon, all the bricks were six by six by six. Any structure that they built had this theme of six connected to it. Um, there are bits of Babylon that even trickle down to us in uh, today's uh, everyday living. If you think about time, I don't know if you've ever wondered why there's 60 seconds in a minute. 60 minutes in an hour, 24 hours in a day. Time is divisible by six. And so the Babylonians actually invented the way that we keep time. And so that's kind of trickled down to our pocket watches or our wrist watches today. And so basically, this brand represents power and influence. And the mark of the beast is a culmination of that power playing out in enforced worship. There's a great story in the Bible. It's Daniel chapter 3, and I invite you to keep your hands in Revelation 14. Turn to Daniel chapter 3, and I'm just going to narrate the story. And we are going to highlight a few verses here. Daniel chapter 3. For those of you who are using the World Changer Bible, it is page 711. Page 711. 
So Daniel chapter 3, the king of Babylon, his name is Nebuchadnezzar. He calls all of his, um, all of the rulers in his empire. And he calls them to this plain of Dura, and he wants to enforce worship. And so Nebuchadnezzar basically calls everybody, and he has all of his governors, all of his, um, yeah, just civil, civil leaders. And he commands them, basically, there is this statue, this golden statue that I've built. When the music plays, I want you to bow down and worship it. And when you look at the original language um, in Daniel chapter 3, it's really interesting because the measurements of this image are 60 cubits by 6 cubits. And there's that number 6 again. And if you actually count the number of instruments that are listed in the original language, there are 6 instruments. So here's this image that's 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide. When you hear 6 instruments uh, play, then bow down and worship this image. And this is basically the mark of the beast. Uh, prophecy in Daniel chapter 3 being played out. So the music plays and everybody in the plane starts bowing down and worshiping except for three Hebrew uh, men. And their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what happens is King Nebuchadnezzar calls these three individuals and he says, hey, didn't you hear my instruction? Why didn't you bow down and worship? And look at their response from verses 14 to verse 18. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace and then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If you had if you are thrown into the blazing if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. And they're basically saying, we refuse to accept the mark of the beasts, right? We refuse your worship. <clears throat> Any power that forces man-made decrees that conflict with God's word is considered an oppressive power that takes on the character of Babylon. Just as Babylon is portrayed as a persecuting power in Daniel chapter 3, there will, there will be and currently are organizations and institutions that attempt to enforce laws, decrees, religious ideology that is contrary to God's word. See, true worship in contrast to false worship, doesn't need to enforce itself on the will of others. True worship draws people to itself. So in the story, the three Hebrews, they're thrown into the furnace of fire. And as they're thrown into the furnace of fire, Nebuchadnezzar looks into that furnace, and instead of seeing three individuals, he sees a fourth individual. And if you read the text, it says, one who bears the appearing of the Son of Man. And that's just another title for the name of Jesus. 
the king of Babylon calls the three Hebrews out of the fire because he finds that they're still alive. And he finds that the only thing burned are the ropes that bound them. I love this verse in Psalm 12, verse 6. It says, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. This is the experience of what it's like to encounter the word of God. See, it's a refining experience. It's challenging. It feels like you're in a hot place. It, it, it's difficult. But the amazing thing here is God says, as you respond to my word, I promise I will give you my presence. You will feel me and know me in your life. In the process of that refining, the only thing that is burned are the things that bind us. I love this story. Their hair isn't burnt, their clothes aren't burnt, but the ropes are. So notice if you go back to Revelation chapter 14, verse 11, if you've got your hands there. Revelation chapter 14, verse 11. In describing those who respond to this beast and its image and its number, it says the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief. And the more accurate translation there is they will have no rest day or night, for they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. Those who have the mark of the beast have no rest. They do not experience the refinement of the word. They do not have that encounter with the presence of Jesus. So in summary, the gospel is going to get us to the end, and we need to guard that experience with the gospel. The temptation is going to be to replace that connection with God for something man-made and transient and something that gives immediate gratification. But in the end, those things do not last. It is our duty or our challenge to not replace that which is eternal for that which is temporary. Finally, there will be an oppressive power that enforces false worship. And true worship is never forced. It's inspired. So we should resist oppressors. We should refrain from practicing that kind of oppression. For in doing so, we prepare ourselves for eternity. The last verse that I'd like to share is verse 12. It says here, this means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus Christ. May you find rest in the presence of God as you prepare for the second coming of Christ. May God bless you. Just, sorry, I'm going to invite you to pray with me as we close. Father God, as we read this prophetic message, as you've given the Seventh-day Adventist Church a specific call to proclaim this message to the world, to present the gospel in a way that draws people to you, I pray that you would give us wisdom, passion, and an encounter with you. Father, may we be uh, revitalized. May we experience rest and may we go to a world that does not know that rest, that does not know you. And may we prepare a people for your soon return. We pray this in your name. Amen.